I'm silly and I sing too high and then I've got no voice for preaching. But. <clears throat> this is week three of a summer series on the grace of God. And I thought today I'd be doing reigning in life from Romans 5, but in fact I truthfully haven't had time to prepare that well. And uh, I also felt I need to step back and say something before we do as well. Today I want to go back to something of the heart of the matter of the grace of God. And it really is the heart of the matter because it's the heart of God. I've been saying now for two weeks that grace is greater even than mercy. Mercy is wonderful, but grace goes beyond mercy. And grace kind of includes mercy. mercy. Very often in a greeting you find grace to you or grace, mercy and peace to you. And when you don't say mercy and peace, you're not saying you can't have those. They're included in grace because grace is all overwhelming. It's all consuming. It's all of God's goodness and favour and kindness and power and wisdom and all the attributes of that are essential to God in himself, are focused upon you and I to do us good. To bring us out of darkness, to bring us out of sin, to bring us into liberty, freedom, we were singing earlier, righteousness, right standing with God, to make us his dear children who know how to live well for him. That's the grace of God. But grace begins with mercy. And it's something of our experience of mercy and forgiveness that gives us the beginning of stepping into and understanding the grace of God. It gives us the measure of how big grace is. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard this phrase. I have a few times. God knows my heart. You laugh. Why? Because generally someone is trying to justify themselves when they say that. Most of yeah? Do you accept that? Most of them, oh, God knows my heart. You know, the very attitude is like, what, you should see yourself right now. <laughs> well, today I want us to know something about God's heart. It's important that we know God's heart. You see, whom he set his affection upon, he doesn't take it away. His loving kindness, his covenant love does not fail. I was reading this morning, in Psalm 31, I think it was. Uh, psalmist there says it's Davidic, it's from that period. The psalmist said, I know the covenant faithfulness of God, though I'm in a besieged city. Can you imagine being in a city surrounded by enemies? You know, they want to kill you. And yet your testimony, we had the word earlier, your testimony is, I know even here the kindness and love of my God. And you think you have hard circumstances. The heart of God. You see, I'll say this, I'm going to say this about three times in three different ways. The way we live as Christians, that's not just Sunday, day by day, depends very much upon how we evaluate and relate to the heart of God, his goodness and grace. How much we sense it, know it, appreciate it. Changes the way we live. Because, as we'll come back to it later on, the scripture in Proverbs, in the old version, King James, that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The way you reason internally produces the way you live. Even if it's only unthinking reasoning. In other words, it's just your prejudices and your, you know, your, your assumptions. So the way we relate to, the way we think about and reason about the greatness and goodness of our God will deeply affect the way we actually live. 
So we're going to be talking a bit today about the heart of God. There are some people who talk a lot about the heart of God and the heart of the Father. In fact, there's a whole kind of movement called the Father Heart. And my problem is that some people who talk like that want to edit out or rewrite a good deal of this because it doesn't fit their pep theory, their personal theology. Oh, I don't like that bit. That doesn't... No. Well, I have to, I'm supposed to eat all of this, all of it, the difficult bits as well. Or friend, you remember Chris, Chris, who remembers Chris, Chris Trigaskis? He was our drummer there years ago. Chris, Chris sent me a little text this week and just was, was appreciating the times when I preached on hard things. You know, the things that no one else will dare to preach. <laughs> he said, I said, oh, actually at that moment in time, I was feeling a bit, fat, fit. oh my goodness, I've got so much to do. But that, that just dropped in and I thought, oh, that's a moment from heaven. <coughs> yeah, thank you, Chris. You know, that's really, I needed encouragement at that moment. You see, God is who he says he is, not who we think he is. He's the I am, not what do you want me to be. You get this then? He's not what you want me to be. He's I am what I am. I am who I am. He's all that he says he is. And the Bible is his self-revelation. It's all inspired by God and it's all profitable to us. So if today I speak about the heart of God, it's based in scriptures that speak about how God views and deals with those he's chosen to be his dear children. You can't take scriptures that talk about God's affection and compassion towards his children and apply them everywhere and anywhere. They're not... Then don't come with that framework. That's why one of the books on my shelves at home is called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. You can take this phrase, the love of God, and kind of paint it on every wall, and it doesn't work because what the Bible says about the love of God is specific to his people, the ones he set his heart upon. God loves the world in a general way, but not in the sense in which he loves those he's chosen and given to Christ. That's a deeper, greater love. So, the Old Testament, you know, isn't, is, 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 there's a saying the old Puritans have, the, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So there are, there are threads running through the Old Testament. It's not like it all suddenly changes, everything changes when you get to the New Testament. No, there are threads going through. You see the grace of God. The way Abraham was dealt with by the Lord was a covenant of grace. God made a covenant, unilaterally made a covenant, you know, of, of I'm going to bless you. you just got to walk sensibly before me. And so there's grace running through. And the language, particularly of the, the Psalms, is extraordinary. God is the one who loves them. The tender mercies. I mean, this is, this is the language almost of, 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 of like intimacy, you know. I don't want to get too, weak, quick, too weird here, but... Tender mercy, loving kindness. His compassions don't fail. This is tender, gentle, yearning, passionate language. The love of God. The Lord has mercy on those who fear him and hope in his goodness, but he will judge the wicked and avenge all wrong. The faithful love of the Lord is with those who trust him and wait for his salvation. I'm just paraphrasing some of the Psalms. But I could go through, and you know me, I tend to pile on a scripture, but I felt this morning just to short circuit a little bit of that, especially for time. 
You see, the new covenant has a mediator, it has a head. It's somebody who stands at the head of the covenant. Because if you belong with him, if you're aligned with him, then everything about him works for you. His name is Jesus. That's why Ephesians, we've been going through, talking about in him, in him, in him. Because he's the head of this whole new humanity. Christians, the children of God. In Jesus, there is this covenant of, G- of grace. Now, I don't know about you, I love to read the Gospels. I think, uh, the, you know, you hear me preach the epistles quite a bit, but I did preach John's Gospel, and maybe we'll preach one of the, the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Wait, you know, next year we might do one of those. Because I love the Gospels. Uh, there's something about Jesus that is captivating, isn't there? There was a man who used to work with Billy Graham years and years ago, and uh, then later on in life that man lost his faith. He gave up on being a Christian. Someone interviewed him when he was very late on in life, and he said, you, those were quite remarkable days with Billy Graham. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, what, what do you, is there anything you miss about those days? Here is what that man said. I miss Jesus. You see, strip away all the religion, all the fuss, all, all the routines. and This business of being a Christian is about Jesus. It's all about him. When you go to the Gospels, you see Jesus telling stories and Jesus dealing with people. And in those Gospel accounts, we are observing and listening to not just a good man. We are seeing the God man. We are seeing God in flesh, God in humanity. Not just wearing a human body. Jesus was truly human, but through that true humanity, he was still revealing true Godhead. What Jesus is, God is. What Jesus does and did, God does and did. He's showing us the Father. If you saw Jesus, you'd seen God, and that's what Jesus himself said. If you heard Jesus, you'd heard God. I want to turn to to Luke 15, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, The end of this chapter, and I've I've printed it out for the sake of doing it. There are three stories here, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Luke 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. These are the people nobody had anything to do with. They were the wicked people. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the religious people, were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, in that moment, Jesus began to tell three parables. What man among you who has 100 sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. We might imply that who think they don't. Parable of the lost coin. Or what woman has 10 silver coins? Now, uh, these silver coins, I I used to have a few in my my kind of cupboard when I was a kid. Coins from the Middle East often had a hole through the middle. You think, what's that hole for? So you put a thread through and then you keep them on a thread. Or you even sew them into your clothing so you've got those coins by you. This woman had ten silver coins. 
and she lost the coin. So she lit a lamp, swept the house and searched until she found it. When she finds it, she calls her women, friends and neighbours together. Rejoice with me, I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, said Jesus, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now who is in the presence of God's angels? God. When, when in the Gospels you read about heaven, it's a polite way of talking about God because Jewish people don't like to use the word God. So they talk about heaven. Heaven rejoices means God rejoices. Rejoicing in the presence of the heavenly angels means God is rejoicing. The parable of the lost son. Jesus also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Now understand this. When uh, a man died in Middle Eastern culture, his, his, his inheritance, his, his riches, land, whatever else, were divided between his sons. The eldest son got a double portion. So if there were three sons, you divide it into four. The eldest son took two-fourths, and the other two sons took one-fourth each. There was a double portion for the eldest, but all the sons inherited something from their father. The rest equally, the firstborn, a double portion. Now, this one is the youngest son. He's got an older brother, we'll read about in a minute. And yet, while the father's still living, and while he's still a young man, he turns up one day and says to his father, I want my money now. I mean, some of you would have blacked his eye. <laughs> I mean, how rude is that? How disrespectful. I can't wait for you to die, I want it now. So the father distributed the assets to them. He retired, in a sense, and gave the money away. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and travelled to a distant country where he squandered all the money he had in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now let's assume this man is a Jewish man and he's now feeding pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods. They're just like dry bean shell things. The pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. <laughs> when he came to his senses, oh wow, what an expression that is. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. There's that heaven expression again. And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the father said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know the rest of the speech you already prepared. He didn't get to do it. The father is ignoring the speech. He calls his slaves and says, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's celebrate with a feast. This son of mine was dead and is alive. He's lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. 
Now his older son, who's now the chief farmer, was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, they told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he's, he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. The father said, son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. The whole picture of those three parables is that God rejoices over lost people being found. Heaven rejoices when people can be forgiven because they've turned around and asked for it. And God, whatever the Pharisees and scribes thought God was like, Jesus has told, just told them, God is like this ridiculously generous father who runs to welcome a rebel son back into the house. Jesus is saying God is like that. So when we talk about the grace and mercy of God, you see, that parable in many Bibles is called the prodigal son. Well, prodigal in older English meant generous. The son wasn't generous. He was stupid. He was a rebel. The father was incredibly generous. That's a picture of the grace of God. How incredibly merciful and generous is that. We, forgetting the elder brother, I'm not going to talk about that one. We, in that story, are like that rebel son. We have acted just as ridiculously, stupidly as he has. And God has shown that kind of mercy and grace to us. Jesus went around forgiving sins. Do you understand what that meant? When a paralyzed man was presented to Jesus to be healed, you can read this in three Gospels, and when you get the notes eventually, I'll tell you where the chapter is. They brought a paralyzed man to Jesus to be healed, and then Jesus looked at the man, get this, and said to him, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, you missed the point, haven't you? No, no, no. There's a deeper work to be done before forgiveness. Before healing, that is. Yes. Yeah. Healing's wonderful, but being forgiven, yeah. knowing the grace of God, yeah. is a much deeper work. The Jewish leaders were standing around and they said, Only God can forgive sins. It's a blaspheming. They were right. Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is God. So Jesus said to them, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so you may know the Son of Man has power, authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up, son, pick up your mat and go home. And he got up and did exactly that. He went home. Jesus has authority on earth now 
still to forgive sins. No matter who you are or what you've done. One time a woman was dragged in front of Jesus. She'd been taken in the act of adultery. I think this was a whole snare thing. It was a whole... They'd been engineered by the, by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. But anyway, they, they, they throw on the ground. and Cut the story short. Jesus, by a very kind of wise, you could say crafty mechanism, sees all the accusers and want to stone her, really, because she's, she's an adulteress. They want to stone her to death. They can't because the Romans are there. He says to them, who, who of you who is without sin cast the first stone? If you're without sin, and you've written on the ground, I don't know where you write on the ground, maybe in the Ten Commandments. If you're without sin, cast the first stone. And they all go away from the eldest to the youngest. She's left there on her own. And Jesus says to her, does anyone condemn you? She says, no. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus forgives sins. Now those who have been forgiven much should love much, shouldn't they? Yes. We would expect so, we would hope so. But Jesus told stories about those who have been forgiven much but didn't value it. At the end of Matthew 18, in which Jesus talks about how lost people had restored, we have this. Uh, he talked about forgiving your brother up to, you know, you know, when he repents, you forgive him and restore him. But have the relationship, their relationship with God and our relationship with one another. We need forgiveness and grace to oil the wheels of human relationships. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be married a long time, you better learn how to forgive. Yeah. And forbear. So Peter, who's getting the drift here, thinks, oh boy, this is, oh, it's a bit tough, isn't it? He says, Jesus, how many times can my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He thought he was making a generous roll of the dice there, you know. But Jesus said, I t tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. How's your maths? That's 490. And if you are still counting at 489, shame on you. That's the point, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I'm going I'm to keep, you know, when he gets past that, I'm going to stop. <laughs> you know, you just show how silly you are if you think like For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who went to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, that's over a million pounds, wow. was brought before him. Since the slave had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. He's asking for mercy, yes? Then the master of the slave, listen, had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. Wow. Now, some of us only, be, only wake up when we have dollar pound signs in front of us. It's a huge amount of money here. But, said Jesus, that slave, freely, newly forgiven, this billion, million pound debt or more, went out 
and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a couple of weeks' wages. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay me what you owe. At this, his fellow slave similarly fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had gone on, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after the master summoned him, he said to the slave, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And then there's one of these really hard sayings, which mostly comes from the word of Jesus. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Slave was forgiven a huge debt, but couldn't forgive someone else a much smaller debt. Had no perspective on how forgiveness is received and shared and passed on. That this is about a flow of grace. That we're to live in grace. When we've received grace, we give grace. Freely we've received, freely we give. We're loved, so we love. Him and one another. But then we have this real life example of someone who treasured the mercy they received. It's in Luke 7. It's a woman who's known to be a sinner. And it just occurred to me yesterday, maybe this was the woman who was taken in adultery, coming back to see him. But never mind. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him, to come to his house for supper. Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. Can you imagine this? She's weeping so much she's washing his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now, whatever you say to self, you know God hears it, don't you? Yes. He said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, because he knew what he was thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, say it. Jesus told a similar story. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they couldn't pay it back, he graciously forgave both of them. Notice the word graciously <coughs> forgave. So which of them will love their master, the, the man more? Who's going to love the man more, the one who's forgiven 500 or the one who's forgiven 50? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You judge correctly, Jesus said to him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, yet you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. 
you gave me no kiss of welcome. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil as is customary, but she's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have all been forgiven. That's why she loved much. Because the one who is forgiven loves little. So the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him were beginning to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? So Jesus said further to the woman, go in peace, your faith has saved you. If we treasure God's mercy and forgiveness, we must be forgiving and merciful to others. It's not a cul-de-sac. It's not a dead-end street. We are to quote the old prophet, to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And these warnings that Jesus gives us in Scripture, you know, we have to be face, face them, face, deal with them face on and say, it is possible to receive the grace and mercy of God and yet somehow be ungrateful, ungracious, ungenerous, unforgiving, unmerciful, ungiving. Yet it is possible to also receive the grace and mercy of God and be so touched and changed by that in our hearts that we respond and reflect the heart of God which is shown to us and we learn to be grateful and gracious and generous and forgiving and merciful and forgiving. And the difference is not in the grace of God towards us. It's in our attitude towards how good he's been. See, if any one of us here this morning thinks, well, I was never much of a sinner. Uh, what? So Jesus didn't need to die for you. It's all the rest of them. Stretched out on a cross, nails through his palm, through, the, through the, you know, his wrists. He paid the price for our sins on the cross. He came to release and to cleanse his people from their sins. If your sins aren't forgiven, you're not his. So if you think you can stack up being good and doing your thing and, you know, I'll be okay, I'm all right, I do all right. Ah, Holy Spirit, please shatter that lie. You need to know you're a sinner before you can know you're a forgiven sinner. It's called repentance. You've got to turn around. You've got to turn around from the way you were and what you did and who you are and turn to God and say, just like those creditors did, have mercy on me. There's a kind of Christianity around nowadays that doesn't talk about sin and forgiveness and doesn't talk about the cross much either. That's my, not my kind. I'm having nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. The difference is our attitude. Let's round this up. <laughs> you all know the pattern prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it. We gave it as a pattern. Here's a, here's a flow you can work with. You can, you can apply that. You can use a bit of it a day or you can go through all of it and add more to it. But it's a pattern of how to pray. And right in the pattern prayer, 
Jesus gave us this. And forgive us our debts. Our debts towards God. The things we've failed in, we've sinned in, our transgressions, we've broken his law, we've messed up, we didn't do what we should have done. He gave us an opportunity, we blew it, we turned away, we hardened our heart. All our debts, everything we owe him. Forgive us our debts, please, Lord. Amen. Is that what Jesus gave us? No. No, it's up there, isn't it? As we also have forgiven our debtors, those who owe us. You can walk around for days, weeks, years saying, they owe me, they owe me, they owe me. <laughs> if in those years you've prayed the prayer, you're a hypocrite. Because you receive forgiveness from God on the basis that you are going to be forgiven. Yes. That grace is not a one-way street in your heart. Yes. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And in case you think, well, okay, I kind of get the point. Two verses later, Jesus applies it even more. Oh, dear. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your Heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, is that some sort of new law that he's building? No. This is describing to us how grace has a flow from heaven, from God, to us and then through us. We are merciful because we've received mercy. We're forgiving because we've received forgiveness. We're loving because we've received love. And when our hearts run dry of these things, they need to be replenished by things. We pray, Father, again, please let the Holy Spirit pour your love into my heart. Let me know again your tender mercies. You see? Every human being kind of runs out of love and affection and compassion. So you need to get some more. Where do you get it from? You get it from God. And you get it by knowing how he loves you. The tender mercies of our God. Your heart is renewed by his love for you so you can then love. That's how it works, folks. So let me say it to you again. The way we live as Christians, day by day, 24-7, depends very much upon how we evaluate and relate to the heart of God, the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. And you may need to take some time out in your day, in your days, at some point this week. Take a lunch hour. If you work, you have a lunch hour, you have a work break, don't sit where you usually sit and eat your quick cat and apple or whatever it is. Step outside a minute, get some fresh air, walk away from people and say, Father, I need you to come and fill my heart again. See, I've discovered this, that there's always more, I've said it a week or two ago, there's always more grace available to us than we ever ask for. We're going to sing a song later on. Just to criticise for a moment, when they wrote the song, they said, just enough grace to live for today. But actually, there's far more grace than I need to live today. There's more grace available than I'm taking hold of. So to quote Hebrews 4.16, yet again, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, which deals with us where we are in our need, and grace to help us, grace to equip us to go out there and do life well and love people who are awkward and difficult and whatever else. (laughs) How we think of and reason through and evaluate and relate to the goodness of God is life-defining. So before I turn to Romans 5, 
and reigning in life, I felt I had to talk some more about the grace of God. Here's how John defines it. I'm just going to read you a few scraps from 1 John. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so we might live through him. That's, a, that's every day, right? That's not, you know, become a Christian and sign up and there you go, ticket to heaven, I'm done. Might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a picture of the mercy seat where God meets people in mercy. For our sins. If you don't come with any sins, I don't know how that works, folks. But we have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And in... I missed all that in-betweens. If I'd read the in-betweens, after almost every one of those statements or before those statements, John says, therefore, love one another. Because this is true, this great, almighty, tender love of God. Go ahead and love your brothers and sisters. In the Lord's Supper, which we're not doing today, we celebrate the forgiveness of sins at the cost of the blood of Christ. In there, in Matthew's account, where Jesus offers them the cup and says, drink from it, all of you. He adds this. I like this in this version of the Holman Christian. This is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is the basic starting place of knowing the grace of God and being a Christian. Paul, John writes, little children... You know that your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You know you're, for, you're a forgiven human being because Jesus died for you. Then you can grow from there. But some of us, I think, need to go back and say, I, I need to remember that. I kind of think I've, I've got so big and I'm so grown up now. It's the way we think sometimes. But my feet are still standing next to the cross where I'm forgiven. We're unforgiven. Let's pray together. And I want to ask you this morning, uh, when, when did your knees hit the dirt before the cross? When, as uh, it's described in Pilgrim's Progress, one of the old hymns we used to sing when I was a kid, when did your burden roll away on Mount Calvary? When did you know for the first time you were wholly, truly, fully forgiven? Because that seems, it seems to me that that is like the cornerstone from which a whole lifestyle of knowing and enjoying the grace of God begins to be built. But it has to start there. With this infusion of divine mercy, so you know in your heart, deep in your guts, I might say, I have been forgiven because Jesus loves me and died for me. Now, the lessons that Jesus taught us are this. 
If you need mercy, what do you do? You go and ask for it. Like the debtors, the people who owed money. Creditors, I should say. The debtors, the people who owed money. That's right, sorry. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't pay back what they owed, so they went and begged for mercy. This morning, you just need to cry out to Jesus for grace and mercy. Mercy that deals with your sin, grace that begins to supply you with new life from heaven. But the Christian life starts there. On the grounds of forgiveness, the blood-soaked crown of Calvary. Offer him your prayer now, quietly. Breathe it out. Talk to him. You don't need to tell him everything you ever did. He knows it better than you. But you're asking him for his mercy. Father, we open our hearts to you through Jesus. Scriptures teach us that primarily, above all, the example of Jesus himself teaches us that you have compassion on those who fear you and trust in your mercy. Like a, a good father loves and pities his children, so the Lord has compassion on those he makes his own. For many of us today, Lord, that is our confession, our testimony. You have been good to us. And some of us today have remembered something we haven't perhaps stood back on for a long time. It started by the simple fact of knowing we were forgiven by incredible mercy. Like the father receiving back the rebel son, you weren't even impressed by our speeches. You just embraced us and brought us in. Now, Father, I pray for those who may have prayed a prayer today, asking you for your mercy. Hear them, Lord. Holy Spirit, pour the love of God into the hearts. Let them know peace that they haven't known before because there's always been something on their mind, something that troubles them, but let today, now, they know they've received the mercy of God. And for all of us, Lord, let your grace not be, let us not be ungrateful for your grace. Let our sense of being loved by God and favoured by God producing us graciousness and generosity and goodness and kindness and forgiveness so that we as the children of God reflect the likeness, the heart of our Father in heaven. For the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh boy, you don't want to write a short sermon, I'm not very sure.